0: This is being modern being human a podcast about contemporary society and its challenges today i'm joined by jason gulia english professor academic writer and researcher at berkeley college new york and we're going to talk about whether there is still a place for literature in today's world thank you very much for taking your time jason welcome
1: thank you thank you so much for having me
0: my first question is personal so you are an english professor How did you come into this profession? What has been your journey so far? So my
1: journey to becoming an English professor was very all over the place. When I went to college, the only thing I knew that I did not want to do was study English. Based off of my experience, based off of how I felt about it, I wanted to be a political analyst. I wanted to be a lawyer at one point. And so through college, I went through this experience of taking all these different subjects and then... What eventually got me into literature and teaching reading and writing was in many ways how open to interpretation it is, which for me as a young college student was extremely exciting, being able to read a story and even if everyone's reading the exact same words on the page, being able to take different meanings from it. And so that kind of opened up my mind. That was not the way that I was taught reading and writing and literature in high school. So it allowed me to revisit it. And then from there, I went through and I got my PhD actually in 18th century British literature. So it is very much a niche field that it gets more and more specialized as you go along. But now one of the things I recognize is that For me, that was great pedagogical training because what I would do when I went into a classroom and I started talking about 18th century British literature is I would just assume based off of feedback I've gotten that no one cared in the room, right? Even people who study English literature might not care about the 18th century. And that actually helped me out. Coming in with that assumption has been a really useful skill for me, especially now I teach at a career-focused institution. We do not have an English major. So it's about making clear the value of reading and writing and literature, regardless of what students want to go into, even if they want to go get their MBA, or they want to go into the healthcare field, making it clear that writing and reading is connected to that. So that's where I am right now. And that's how I got there.
0: Wonderful. You mentioned you teach the value of reading and writing. And that's a really interesting aspect of it. Before, say in the 19th century literature, was a tool to spread ideas and capture the spirit of our times that dates back to to Gutenberg, actually, when printing was introduced to Europe. In your opinion, what is the role of literature today? Uh, Has it somehow changed its social status, so to speak? What do you think?
1: I think in many ways it has and hasn't. I'll have the (laughs) best of both worlds here. I think that in some ways the social status of the literature with a giant L. So, thinking about the canon and what academies have said that counts as literature, I think that has fallen in some ways, which I actually don't think is a bad thing. That's the positive spin. So, what I mean by that is, in many ways, one of the things I'm going to do is explode the canon because by lowering the social status of what was traditionally understood as literature with a giant L in the 19th century, or even really up until the 1980s, by bring that down, it allows us a space for including popular culture. So it allows us to really expand what literature is. And so for me, literature is anything connected to storytelling. So that includes not just books, novels, but poems, spoken word poems, songs, TV shows, movies these podcast episodes might count as stories and as literature. And so the lowering of the social status of traditional capital L literature, I think has actually helped us make reading writing and literature specifically, it it allows us to make the value even more noticeable because it allows us to say to students that study a work of literature, and then they can go out into the world and they can use a lot of the same analytical skills to think about the movie they watched that day or the song they listened to that day. And so that's the exciting part of it. I think that the canonical literature has come down in social status, but it has allowed us to really open up what literature is and how it works.
0: That's a great point. So as you said, if we regard literature with a capital L, we tend to think of it as something unapproachable. We fear it. But if we see it as part of popular culture, we have a totally different relationship with literature.
1: And there's a flip side to it, too. And it really hit me a few years ago, because I think on the one hand, you're totally right, that it makes literature with a capital L kind of scary and intimidating. And But the other side is this, that it makes it so that Things in popular culture, movies, TV shows, songs, it makes it hard to subject them to critical analysis. So a few years ago, one of the things I asked students to do was I gave them a song by Kendrick Lamar and we walked through it and I asked them to analyze it. In other words, I asked them to use the critical thinking skills that they thought were reserved for literature and to use it on something that was released that year. And students had so much trouble with it. And of course, they're going to. It's a different kind of skill. The skills are the same, but being able to apply them to a part of popular culture is something that many of my students had never done before. And that's such a tremendous loss because if the teaching of reading, writing, uh, and literature is worth its salt, it is something that can be applied to popular culture and should be applied to popular culture.
0: Absolutely. And what was the difficulty they encountered in analyzing Kendrick Lamar's song?
1: <laughs> I think getting beyond the assumption that it was just for entertainment. Right? I tell many of my students that whenever you say something like it's just for something, or if someone says that to you, giant red flags should go up. It's never just for something. There are different ways to approach it. And Our assumptions, whether they're personal or cultural, they can be embedded and they often are embedded within popular culture. And I think getting students to appreciate that and really embrace that and what that means, that was a difficult thing because they might listen to a song and just say, oh, that's just for fun and then go on their merry day. And I understand why our minds do that. It's a way of to preserve bandwidth. But by pushing against that argument and that assumption, I think that we could enliven the world around us.
0: I agree. One connection I would like to make is between classical literature and modern TV shows. For instance, in the 19th century, many novels were published in journals in installments. That's what we see in modern TV shows. Do you think these visual forms have replaced literature? I think
1: they've expanded it. In many ways, in my mind, the defining skill of the 21st century is to think about storytelling, both in words, verbally, and visually. It's a very difficult thing to do, but it's something that we need to do in order to really think about everything around us, our, surri- our surrounding culture, in a way that is productive and one of the ways that I try to model how to do this for my students is not just teaching movies but teaching graphic novels which are extremely interesting because of how they link up visual storytelling to storytelling through words and it uses the not just the reinforcement that pictures have with words but how they can go move in different directions and once we have that once we have this idea that verbal storytelling and visual storytelling can be different even as they're on the same page age. I think what that does is it allows us to really emphasize how things like TV shows and movies also work. I right? use the same kind of thing. They use the same kind of concept, but they do it in a somewhat more subtle way than graphic novels, right? but they're still doing the same sort of work. But a lot of times what TV shows do is they take different forms of storytelling right? So one of them is through words. Often the words are actually just spoken in dialogue form, but before that, they're actually written down by a screenwriter who's ever running the show. So they have that, but they also have visual storytelling and it throws it in there. It also has storytelling through sound, music, score, actual songs if they have them. And so it throws everything together. And I think that Because of that, it forces us to expand what literature actually is and what storytelling is. So I don't think it's like replaced literature traditionally, but it's forced us to revisit it and sometimes even expand it.
0: What you said about graphic novels and visual storytelling made me think about prehistoric times, pictures in the caves. This is Southern archetypal. I think that combining this literature tradition with the visual storytelling is a new level of this archetypal aspect of our culture.
1: In many ways, nothing is new under the sun, right? That things are repurposed, ideas are repurposed. So we, I think many of us convince ourselves that something is new or special, but in the end, more often than not, it isn't. One of the ideas that I've talked to my students about and I've written about two. is that one of the most important things that literature can do at this point in time is to recognize that it might not be that special. That's a weird thing for someone who's very interested and invested in literature to say, But I think that's true. Being able to say that this story or this example of literature is simply working through how images work or how the human mind works. emphasizes that there's not anything special about it. It's just a different way of connecting things about the world.
0: Now I would like to talk about actually teaching writing. How should it be taught today to be a working skill? We understand that it's essential in a contemporary society where we are overloaded with information, where communication is actually key to every area, be it education, business, science, whatever.
1: I think one of the important concepts when it comes to writing and the teaching of writing that really needs to be emphasized is that writing is not extraneous to thoughts. One of my favorite quotes about writing is by Lewis Flack. He said that writing is thinking and thinking is hard work. And there are many different research articles and research that's been done, as well as just these quotes that are freely accessible out there that think about the relationship between writing and thinking. And many of my students come into class not thinking that this is true, that they think the writing process is something that happens after thinking. And somewhere along the way, they've been thought, they've been taught to think about writing as a linear process. You look at something, you think about it, you decide what your point's going to be, and then you write. They have that very kind of industrial step-by-step approach. And one of the things that I try to do, and I think that this is productive disruption, is to tell them that for the vast majority of writers, myself included, that is not true. That writing is a mechanism of thought that we use the writing process in order to figure out how we feel about something or how we think about something. And that needs to be, especially in college, front and center to the process of teaching writing, because that's the whole thing. And that gives us the ability as professors to push against all these forms that are out there that might make writing easier, but they make it less productive. And I think that this also highlights just the value of writing, right? Why to do it, even outside of the writing process itself. So once we embrace the idea that writing is a form of thinking, that allows us to say very truthfully that by working on writing, we can improve students' ability to think critically, And once we have a skill like that at the center of the writing classroom, we can branch off, we can connect it to students' careers, to the jobs they have, or careers that don't exist yet. And I think that we have to have that in mind, too, because in a writing class, we don't just want to prep our students to write a 10-page paper or whatever we're doing, but we want to give them skills that are translatable into contexts that might not even exist yet.
0: That's true. On your blog, I wrote something about teaching writing through video games, teaching critical thinking through video games. I'm really curious about that. Could you explain, please? <laughs> I can give you some examples
1: that I've used that I've found productive and the use of video games to teach writing is all a part of my approach to exploding the canon because I think that one of the best things we can do now is to look at examples of what people formerly understood as high literature whatever that is and popular culture video games are in many ways the encapsulation of modern storytelling, because a video game at its very heart is about participation. It's not about just learning about a story or being told it, it's about participating in it. And stories are very frequently doing that, especially right now in 2022, they're bringing in readers as participants into the world. And so video games really capture this And so, one of the video games I used to teach in the context of literature, very often not known about. And I mentioned early on in our interview that my specialty, my training is in 18th century British literature. So one of the stories that I'm so interested in is The Pilgrim's Progress, which to this day is one of the most popular books in the world. It is constantly being translated, constantly being read, read. And there is a video game version of it. It is done as an RPG, as a role-playing game. So essentially what they did was they took different parts of Christian belief and Christian practice, and they turned them into warfare in an RPG format. So you might come across an enemy, right? You would come into close contact with it. It would change the screen so that you would be there as Christian, as the main character, and you'd be facing your villain. And your weapons would be something like a spiritual sword or a shield. One of the things you could do was pray for the for your enemy. And that would actually hurt them. So the goal is to take that idea of Christian allegory and puts it into a new RPG context. So that's one way that I've used video games. And in that context, what I'm really doing is I'm trying to think about adaptation and how adaptation works. And there is another approach to it. And I got at this by using Super Mario a few years ago. So I was teaching a literature class and I decided to get rid of chronology. I wasn't going to start with the earlier text and move closer and closer to the present. I wasn't going to do that. I was going to create units around themes and I was going to link certain texts in terms of how they understood those themes. And so I did a whole unit on death. And we actually started with John Donne, Death Not Proud. So we went through that and we talked about it and the whole paradox of killing death and what that would actually be. Because that's what that poem is about at its core. And then I introduced the idea of cyclical death using Super Mario because Super Mario is arguably the most famous representation of death in the world, but we never think about it. The fact that in the video game, you fall off a cliff, you die, you respawn and you go back and you have to do the same thing, which is an iterative educational process. You fail, you fall quite literally, you go back, you do it again until you get it right. And so that is a notion of death that we can find everywhere. The TV show, Russian Doll, it's done for last. It's done as a dark comedy, but you also have versions of it like Death Day, Which take that same idea, and I give my students this as well, takes that same idea from Super Mario, and it becomes the fodder of a horror movie. Because if that were true, if you were someone who could be killed, and then come back to life, and then killed again, and have that constantly happening to you, that would be, in a very real way, the most horrifying thing you could imagine. (laughs) So they use that idea. And so what I'm doing there in that use of the video game forum is I'm trying to think about how video games are using ideas and concepts in storytelling and rethinking them using the medium that they're working within.
0: You mentioned death. And again, we're going back to this archetypal part of it, part of literature and part of storytelling. These are some uh, intrinsic things that are common to literature and any form of storytelling since ancient times. It's just another form of it.
1: (laughs) It's one of the reasons that Shakespeare to this day is remade, reimagined again and again. There is something unique about Shakespeare but yet also not unique, because what he really did was he amped up literature's ability to think about these universal truths or almost universal truths. And that's one of the reasons that they resonate with audiences, even in 2022. And even this year, there are a bunch of movie adaptations of Shakespeare that get viewership. It's not just marked as irrelevant, but people actually do engage with them. And I think that is that really speaks to the power of literature, not just to Shakespeare.
0: Exactly. Another thing I'm interested in your research is teaching writing as community building. What is it? Many of my
1: students come in with this idea that writing happens in isolation. So of course what I do is I try to push against that notion because writing is at its foundation a social activity. The only thing that really matters is whether the other person is visible to us. We tend to think about social activity as us being able to actually see each other reacting. But in any form of writing, and it doesn't matter even if you're doing it alone in your study or wherever, it still involves thinking about your audience and how they're going to React that built into literature or any form of writing is the, the notion that you need to take your audience into account. And you need to think about their expectations. And a lot of the times this comes down to thinking about the genre that you're working in. If I sit down and I start writing a horror story, and I know that my audience knows that it's a horror story, I have to think about how to work within that genre in a way that isn't that is interesting and new and actually brings a different voice to that context. So writing has always been about the social and communal. However, there is a lot that needs to be emphasized with that I in the past have used things like Google Docs or Microsoft Forms, and I will actually have students write to each other in that Context, And I've done this with general writing and composition classes. I've also done it with literature classes, because one of the most exciting things that I like students to practice is going into a document that might have a passage at the very top and comment on it and then respond to comments on it. And so it gives you this kind of back and forth discursive aspect that sometimes is left out of the writing process because many of us assume that writing is something that is just done in isolation and then you print it, and that's it and there's no back and forth. But the most exciting forms of writing because they highlight how writing is a part of thinking and dialogue, do not do that. And they highlight just how social and communal writing can be as a process.
0: Actually, writing can be communal, not only when several people work on a document, but when you sit down and want to write something, you actually have an idea of uh, your reader. And so you are writing and you, you are addressing someone.
1: Absolutely. There is no hypothetical personless reader. Many of my students come in with this idea that you write for some person that doesn't actually exist in the world that doesn't have certain assumptions. And one of the things that we can do as professors and as teachers more generally is to just emphasize how that person doesn't exist, that people have context, people have assumptions. And they're one of the best things we can do is to just work those assumptions as much as possible into our own writing process.
0: That actually brings us to the point of authenticity? Because when you write, you should express yourself authentically. Otherwise, the reader will always feel that there is something wrong with it, that you are not honest enough. What do you think about it? And how can you develop authenticity in writing? I think
1: one of the best ways to think about authenticity is to think about what it isn't. Because in many ways, authenticity is this kind of, it has this negative definition into it, built into it. Inauthenticity is a very specific thing. And so for me, discourse or writing becomes inauthentic when we start earmarking certain topics and ideas as inadmissible. So in many ways, One of the things that we do as people, especially in the modern world, is we move between these different contexts. I might speak differently to you than I would speak to my closest friends, than I might speak to my wife, than I might speak to my child or my coworkers, right? We all have these different roles that we're managing and we move between them. Those are not necessarily inauthentic. When they become inauthentic is when we start to say your role as blank means you cannot talk about something. So if I were to say to another professor or teacher, hypothetically, I would never say this, but hypothetically, you're in your professor role now. Do not talk about mental health. If I were to do that, I make the discourse and writing, if it's happening in that form, I make it inauthentic that there as we move between these different roles we need to be able to have equivalence. So there might be a way that I talk about mental health for in a classroom versus how I talk about mental health with a psychologist or a stranger that I might have different ways I talk about them, but it becomes inauthentic as soon as we say, no, you can't talk about that here. Here's not the space for that. And so authenticity for me is being able to, as we move between different roles, to bring anything into the conversation and have that kind of discourse that mode of discourse that allows us to do that because as soon as we earmark certain topics and certain ideas as inadmissible we start to lose the trust of our audience then suddenly things become fake and so as soon as something is fake or inauthentic it becomes very hard to connect to another person
0: another important aspect of modern storytelling is that because of information overload, our attention span has decreased. In your opinion, how has it impacted storytelling? And are we now seeing only short forms? What do you think?
1: This is where I think literature is actually very cool. And I'm not speaking just as a nerd who loves literature. But I actually see spaces trying to imitate what literature already does. And especially with instructional design, and this is one of the fields that I found so interesting, because of what it's attempting to do with making immersive narrative, in many ways, immersive narrative has historically been part of the realm of literature, that literature is meant to bring you into a new space and to get you to really embrace it and immerse yourself in that new environment, even if it's fundamentally different than your own surrounding environment. So I actually think even though, yes, there's all this resource that says there's been a shortening of the human attention span and everything else, there is still a space for that. And even more so than that, there is a thirst for it because, and I talk to my students about this all the time, when I was young and I would read all the time, I might pick up a book read to read 100 pages read 200 pages. And I would lose touch with how much time has passed. I'm fully immersed in that new environment. Now, many of the time, my students do not have that experience with a book, but they might have it with literature, or sorry, with literature with TV shows, or with movies, that they might sit and become immersed in that movie for two hours and suddenly lose touch with who's sitting next to them or where they needed to go after that. So there is that kind of immersion. And I think students actually want that. One of the things that has happened because of all these distractions around us is that students often want the ability or even want the opportunity to immerse themselves in something specific and really just go to town in terms of thinking about that thing, unwrapping it, in some sort of way. And I think that the decrease in attention span hasn't gotten rid of that it's actually made it more of a desire for our students.
0: Um, And what do you think uh, about educational approaches in general? Of course, today our world is changing rapidly and new technologies appear and disappear very quickly. What is the aim of education and what changes should be made in the educational system in high school in college and university to adapt to these new realities?
1: I love that question. I see the modern learner as being on a spectrum so on one end of the spectrum you have the passive learner someone who's simply there to soak up information right often data often just information in general so that's one side of the spectrum the other side of the spectrum is the active learner and this is often called the adult learner right which may not even be an adult you can have adults who are an adult learners you can have kids who are adult learners and all an adult learner is, is someone who's learned to be an active participant in the learning process and being able to not just have information pushed on you, but to be able to pull information That's like the ideal for an adult learner. So for me, the goal of a modern educator is to figure out where a particular student is on that spectrum and kind of nudge them towards the more active adult learning Model. And what I find this an exceptionally interesting part of education because I teach at college. So many of my students are adult learners already, which is great. And then others, they might be 18, 19 years old. They might have just gotten out of high school. And so they need an additional support system. They might be further towards the passive part of the learning spectrum. And then it's just a matter of finding ways to nudge them. So that by the end of a semester with me, ideally, That student is more comfortable with being active in the learning process, being able to figure out not just information out there in the world, but how they can connect it to other information and how they can connect it to themselves and their own lives and also to their own work and their own possible career if they're already thinking about that, which hopefully they are.
0: You seem to be a very open-minded and curious person. And I'm sure you not only teach, but also learn uh, from your students and from the educational process itself. What is it that you have learned from your student? One of my biggest
1: takeaways from working with students is that I need to be very mindful of how stories create assumptions. And in fact, they're based off of them. So in many ways, stories are one of the defined characteristics of what it means to be human. Humans tell stories, they create stories, they engage with stories. And when I go in and I create a core syllabus, I'm creating a story. I can think about it in another way, but in the end, a syllabus is just a way of telling a story about whatever that topic is. And so whenever I create a story like that, I work off of assumptions and those assumptions may or may not be true I automatically work on assumptions based off of what my students need or what I think they need and so one of the things that I do now is I try to make my students as much as possible Co creators in the course content. I ask them for feedback. I ask them for what they think they need, why they think they need it. And that gives me valuable information about how I can actually craft a course around them rather than just teaching the same course again and again and again. And in many ways, in my mind, colleges have lost or have not taken advantage of a really amazing opportunity. And the opportunity is that we can actually get to know our learners. If you go into corporate instructional design, odds are the person who is creating the learning experience might have data. Odds are they're working off of that hard evidence, which is very useful. But they often do not have the ability to say just, Sit down with a learner one-on-one and ask them how they feel about something and to work that feedback into that learning process. We have that ability, we have that opportunity that I can and I can do this virtually, I can do it digitally, I can also do it just from person to person. So I've learned to not really rest on my assumptions, but to use students as a way to blow them up or explode them. And I think that. This goes both ways, right? So that when we create a learning environment and a learning culture where assumptions should be highlighted and they should sometimes be pulled apart, that has to go both ways. In order to really connect with my students, at least in my mind, I need to be willing to be vulnerable. And there are different ways to do that. One way to do it is to let my students actually choose what we're reading or what we're writing or what we're thinking about. That brings them in as co-creators, but it also makes me vulnerable. And it also, another way of doing this, if, and I do this all the time in my literature classes and my movie classes, if I let students pick a movie that they already know very well, and I might not, it switches the power dynamic. And I think that's good. Because students, I think, when they think about a college classroom, they think about an expert who's already read something or watched something 400 times and is just spouting out information. Um, But I think that sometimes it's useful for just students to see someone trying to make sense of something for the very, very first time.
0: That's true because the learning process is a communication process and communication is always both ways, as you just said. You also mentioned that it relates us to being human. My podcast is called Being Modern and Being Human. I'd like to ask that question that I ask all my guests. So what does that mean to you, being modern and being human today?
1: For me, being a modern human means learning what it is like to live with divided attention. I had a meeting with my students the other day. I was meeting with them virtually through Zoom. And one of the things I stopped and I hit pause about was I talked about how many notifications and I literally just cataloged them off to the side, how many notifications I got throughout the course of their conversation. So during the course of an hour long Zoom, I got something like 10 emails. I got like seven text messages. I had all of these different things that were demanding my attention at that time. And I think that captures what it means to be human and to exist in the world. And you mentioned this too when or an aspect of this when you talked about the attention span and how that's getting shorter and shorter. And I think this ability to divide our attention and needing to divide our attention is a part of that. And in many ways, the value or one of the values I'll say of literature is countercultural. Immersive narrative is about teaching students to monotask, just to focus on one thing for that moment in a world that asks them to multi instead of being on your phone and on your computer and talking to someone and doing this and this instead of doing five things at once. Do one thing, sit there, watch that movie and ignore everything else, or pick up a book and just do that one thing. And there is something extremely liberating about that. And I think that even as literature changes and expands in many ways, that thirst for immersive narrative is countercultural. Right? It pushes against the desire to multitask. And we see this with video games too right? It immerses us into a world that is not our own. And so that is actually a way, video games are a way to adapt storytelling techniques to modern humanity.
0: That's a great answer. Thank you so much, Jason. Let's be human. Let's read and watch, be open-minded and see the world from different angles. Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome.